the movie The Green Mile uh, stars Tom Hanks. It's set in a prison in Louisiana in 1935. It's about the guards and prisoners on death row. Prisoners are sentenced to die for their crimes. There are some incredibly sweet and moving scenes, uh, full of life and joy, scenes of deep friendship and triumphant goodness. But at the same time, because it's actually set on death row, there's always this dark, foreboding shadow of death that hangs over it. It affects any enjoyment, it dulls any pleasure we feel as we watch the movie. Because we're pretty sure we know how it's all going to end for the characters that we, uh, that we enjoy. And it's a little bit like that here in these verses we're looking at in John chapter 11 and 12. First part of 11 was all about life. Lazarus raised miraculously from the grave and we're optimistic. But now, a short time later, it's all about death. Death has cast its shadow over every scene. I don't know whether you've been involved in any situation where death is sort of looming. It's inevitable. People try to ignore it. Uh, maybe it was in a nursing home or a palliative care ward or an intensive care room. The patient knows death's near. The doctor does. The family knows it as well, but, but no one really wants to mention it. Conversations are forced and lightweight, deliberately cheery. People trying too hard to tell a joke or bring back a happy memory. Everyone not wanting to talk about death. Uh, as if naming it will give it more power and speed its coming. Well, it's like that today in four scenes that we're watching, four scenes where death's darkness is blocking out the goodness and the light. Scenes that should be joyful, but uh, they're subdued and they feel slightly forced. But the interesting thing through, that all, through all of these scenes is to look at the attitude of Jesus. Rather than avoid death pretend it's not there, he welcomes it, he names it, he stares it down and more or less is saying, bring it on, I'm ready. We'll come back to it uh, again, but just for a moment, flip over to the, the verses that come after chapter, uh, the verses we just read, chapter 12, verse 23, chapter 12, verse 23, to see where we're going to finish up. 12, verse 23, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The time has come. Jesus has been waiting his whole life for this moment. You may remember all the way back in chapter 2, his, his mum asks him to do something about the wine that's run out. Chapter 2 verse 4, and Jesus says, don't involve me, my hour has not yet come. It's not time yet. Chapter 7, the same thing again. His brothers say, go to Jerusalem and show everyone all your amazing miracles. And in 7 verse 6 he says, my hour has not yet come. A bit further on, 7 verse 30, the leaders try to seize him, but we're told they can't seize him because his hour hadn't come yet. Chapter 8 verse 20, same thing again. But now the opposition intensifies the murderous threats are finally voiced and Jesus finally says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Time for everyone to see the glory that I came to reveal. 
They've been watching for the signposts. Now it's time for the big finale. Because it's how Jesus deals with his death that will supremely show who he is and why he's come and reveal his glory. Death is the opponent in the heavyweight championship title bout and Jesus is saying, bring it on. That's how it finishes. But let's jump back a few scenes. Uh, Our first scene, some time after Lazarus has been raised from the dead, you think it would be an incredibly joyful time, people wanting to follow Jesus, this one who's defeated death, and there's certainly some of that. Uh, There are new people following, that's verse 45, but there are others who are not so sure. They ask the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, to find out what they think. And verse 47, they say, Here's this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now notice they're not actually denying that Jesus did miracles. They're more or less accepting that he'd raised Lazarus from the dead. Which is incredible, isn't it? But that doesn't seem to interest them. What's of more pressing concern is that the miracles he's doing might attract the wrong sort of attention. Uh, That the Romans would interpret all the excitement as uh, a political uprising, as rebellion, especially around this time of Passover. And then they'll come in and they'll smash everything and and the Jewish leaders will lose their power base. And so rather than any of that happen, they decide it's politically expedient to kill Jesus, to remove the cause of all the excitement to hush everything up. Uh, Look at verse 49. Caiaphas, the high priest, sums up the feeling and he says, don't you realise it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish? Better their political futures are saved than the people might recognise Jesus the Messiah and be saved themselves. Better they protect their own necks rather than protect the people Jesus actually came to save. Uh, it's the worst, uh, it's what the worst of politicians and leaders do, isn't it? Feathering their own nest, looking after themselves. Uh, it'd be the ultimate tragedy if it wasn't something that God had himself planned all along. It's interesting, isn't it? Caiaphas is talking about a political solution. If we allow Jesus to live, the nation will be destroyed. So let's destroy Jesus so the nation can be saved. But John says something interesting in verse 51. He points out that Caiaphas's words have two meanings. He means one thing, and yet in God's truth, they mean something different. God is at work in those words and in the actions of Caiaphas and the other religious leaders. God's at work bringing about a spiritual solution, uh, making his words more or less like prophecy. In and through, and despite the scheming of wicked men, God works out his sovereign plans. Do you see it there in verse 51? John says, he didn't say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. Caiaphas spoke better than he knew. Jesus would die, all right, but it would be according to God's plans, not human plans. And it wouldn't be to remove the threat of a a Roman massacre, it would be a death that removed the wrath of God. Caiaphas says it's better for Jesus to die, 
And he was right, but better was not in the sense of some political solution. It was better from God's point of view. Uh, God's solution to the problem of our sin. And so it was God's plan for Jesus to suffer, not Caiaphas's, that Jesus would suffer at the hands of those same Romans Caiaphas wanted to appease so that instead God could be appeased and his justice satisfied. And it was better, not just for the privileged few who were the leaders, but it was actually better for the Jewish nation, in fact, better for the whole human race. See there in verse 52 that he came to save the whole of humanity. One perfect man's death so that all people who trust him might become his children, become God's children. It was a plan that wicked men put into place, but at the same time, behind it all was God's plan. And so we see moving forward, Jesus is a marked man. Schemes are put in place for his life. And the chapter finishes by announcing it's almost time for the Passover. Now that's more than telling us the date on the calendar. It's setting the scene. Uh, When a lamb will be sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins. That's like the, the, the eerie music that plays in a movie and, and we're meant to think about how that makes us feel. Now let's move into chapter 12 and our second scene, deathly preparation. Once more there's the smell of death over it. We get a time check, it's six days to Passover until a lamb is slain and blood poured out. And Jesus is back in Bethany with Mary, Martha and Lazarus. It's a welcome home dinner For Lazarus, a party, it's held in Jesus' honour. Matthew 26 tells us it's at the home of Simon the leper. As usual, Martha helping with the cooking and Mary's out socialising. And the setting is that they'd be seated on on the floor around a low table, something like one of our coffee tables, and their legs would be spread sort of away from the table, maybe perhaps reclining on an elbow, on a cushion and the food would be on the table. I wonder what the mood of the party would be like. On the one hand, it would be joyful. Jesus is there. Lazarus was there. Every time that the, the crowd, the, 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 the dinner guests would have looked at Lazarus, they'd just be shaking their heads in amazement, wouldn't they? The, the image of him walking out of that dark tomb wrapped in rags was still imprinted on their minds and it would bring a smile to their face. But as well as the joy, there would be this sombre feel about the whole party. Forced smiles because death was near. Jesus is a wanted man. There's a price on his head and he's only a few kilometres away from Jerusalem from the danger. He's risking his life. And there'd be a sweet... Uh, poignancy about it as well, I think. Certainly for Jesus, he he wants to enjoy these last few hours with the friends he loves most in the world, his disciples, as well as Mary, Martha and Lazarus. In some ways, the mood, it's what the mood was like is a, a bit of guesswork, but at some point in the evening, Mary loses it. She can't, she can't hold back her emotion, her gratitude a moment longer. She takes a huge jar of expensive perfume, she cracks it open, she she pours it on Jesus' feet. He's probably facing away from his feet, looking at the table and the dinner conversation, his feet are uh, away. 
Maybe she'd bought the perfume for Lazarus's burial. But she doesn't need it for that anymore. Surplus to requirements. And then because she doesn't have a cloth, she wipes his feet with her hair. And the end of verse 3 tells us that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I'm imagining that John remembers it still as he's writing these words down decades later. And for the eyewitnesses, that the beauty of the act combines with the beauty of the aroma of the perfume and, and they mingle together. Mary thinks, forget the expense. Forget the embarrassment. Who cares what's appropriate? Jesus has done everything for me. What little can I do in return? But even in the beautiful sweetness of the moment, there's the sour taste as well, the bitter taste of death. Judas grumbles about the waste because he would have rather been able to steal the money, help himself. But look at Jesus' rebuke in verse 7. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, now Jesus is not saying that the poor don't matter. He's saying that Mary's action foreshadows another perfuming in about a week's time when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus will wrap Jesus' lifeless body in strips of linen and combine them with maybe 30 kilos of spices and perfume and place his body in a tomb. There's no avoiding the topic with Jesus. He knows what's coming. Death is soon. He's scared, but he's enjoying Mary's love and appreciation. That's what matters at the moment. Who cares about a bottle of perfume, he thinks. And once again, it's another prophecy, this time from Mary, not with words, but with actions. Her, her actions speak more truly than she realises. Did she realise what was coming for Jesus, that he was going to die, perhaps? Did she realise that her anointing was symbolic, was prophetic for the actions of others uh, over Jesus' body in a week's time? No. But Jesus saw the significance. Jesus is saying to everyone who's there, death is coming, I can feel its shadow. So let's make the most of life. Let's enjoy it while we've got it. Interestingly, it's not just a shadow that hangs over Jesus. Uh, poor old Lazarus cops it again as well. The chapter finishes with Jesus discovered, a crowd assembles, the leaders find out that Lazarus is there too. And then the poor guy gets added to the death list. Like you think he would have been through enough already, but he's under threat of death again. We move into scene three, which on the surface doesn't really look like death. It's to do with death, but once again there's that time check. Verse 12, a great crowd arrived for Passover. Still five days to go until a lamb is slain and blood poured out crowd here, Jesus is on his way and they rip, they rip down palm branches and they yell out, Hosanna, God saves. Blessed is he who comes in, the name of his, uh, comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Now the palm branches are, are, are a national symbol of pride, of patriotic fervour. 
It's like waving around a national flag and singing praise to the King of Israel at the same time. And with the very first Passover in their minds, the people are hoping that Jesus is the one who's going to deliver the way Moses did. Not from Egypt, but from the Romans. They're longing for a warrior king, someone who will ride into town on a noble battle horse. That's the type of glory they've got in mind, but Jesus has another glory in mind. And so instead, he organises for a donkey. Weak, unthreatening, probably would have looked almost comical, not perched high up above everybody else on a horse, but down at eye level, waddling from side to side as he sort of rolls into town. And he does it very deliberately to hose down their expectations. Sure, he's the Messiah. Uh, Yes, he's come as king, but it's a very different type of kingdom to what they're imagining. And it's only later that the disciples put the pieces together. Were they wondering about why a donkey? But at some point, uh, later on, they recognise Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9 talks about God's plan to send a king, but a very special type of king who will bring in a very special type of kingdom. Zechariah 9 verse 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. God goes on to say, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He, this king, will proclaim peace to the nations and his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. God's kingdom is about peace, not war. Love, not violence. Gentleness, not domination. And it's a, king, uh, it's a kingdom that's very different in its size as well. The Jews were expecting a national king. But Jesus' kingship would be an international one, as Zechariah prophesied. Did you notice that? It'll be from, to the ends of the earth. And so as Passover approaches, the crowd continues to gather and the Pharisees get more anxious and murderous. And so we come to scene number four. We didn't read it, but you can read ahead. The death bell sounds. Jesus announces that the time has arrived. That verse we looked at at the beginning, 12 verse 23, the hour has come. The gong goes off. Death has been hanging around. Now the process begins. And Jesus says, bring it on. Because unless I die, many more won't be able to live. Just like a seed that perishes when it's planted, producing a new plant that in turn produces lots more seeds. I wonder as Jesus looks down from his heavenly throne now what he makes of that kingdom uh, with many more seeds spread across the whole world. Uh, Not just Jews, not just Greeks or Romans, but male and female of every colour and language every income band and interest group, all following this king of peace, this donkey king, this servant king. 
this king who welcomed death that others might live. A kingdom that includes us. If you have vowed your allegiance to this king, if you've turned from your rebellion, then you are part of this kingdom Jesus foresaw. This kingdom that Mary uh, looked forward to, that the sweet aroma of her perfume reaches. And it's Mary who sets us the example for how we should respond. Did you notice how Mary is always at Jesus' feet? Luke chapter 10 tells us of another time when she sat at Jesus' feet and listened to his teaching while her sister Martha worked. John chapter 11, Jesus uh, comes to visit Lazarus, who's died, and, and Mary falls at his feet, overcome by the emotion. And once again, here in gratitude and worship, she pours out the perfume onto his feet. And we do well to follow Mary's example, to bow at the feet of King Jesus, to bow in recognition, to bow in allegiance, to bow in love and gratitude, and then offer him whatever we have. To not worry about the cost, to not worry about who else is looking or listening. To say with Mary, forget the expense, forget the embarrassment, who cares what's appropriate? Jesus has done everything for me. What little can I do in return? I wonder what that'll look like for you. Perhaps it'll mean becoming a Christian, handing your life over to Jesus, bowing before his throne for a first time. That will cost you everything. It'll, it'll cost you your whole life. Many of us are Christian. What will it cost you? Perhaps it'll cost you your passion for something else in life. Perhaps he wants you pouring out before him your goal to reach that, uh, those top marks at school or university. Or maybe it's a hobby or a sport that takes up all your free time. Perhaps instead Jesus wants a new allegiance, a commitment to a ministry or your church family. Or maybe you can pour out a financial cost a compassion sponsor child instead of a Foxtel subscription or supporting a missionary rather than the Sydney Symphony or setting up a direct deposit for church giving rather than whatever's left in your pockets on Sunday evening. Or maybe Jesus is calling for you to pour out a time cost to get out of bed early for a prayer meeting or to meet up with someone, to give up your lunch hour to read the Bible and pray with another Christian or perhaps a not yet Christian from your work. Or maybe that you've got professional skills you can pour out at Jesus' feet. Accounting or business or music or teaching or governance. Honour Jesus with the best that you've got. Lay out what you have at his feet. Pour your life out in extravagant service. Because extravagant service is what Jesus deserves. Forget the expense. Forget the embarrassment. Who cares what's appropriate? 
Jesus has done everything for me. What little can I do for him in return? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we come tonight, uh, we hear the words about what Jesus has done for us and in a little while we're going to see and taste the symbols that remind us, that confirm what Jesus has done for us. Uh, help us to see it, to appreciate it, to trust it, to be great, uh, to to uh, to express our gratitude. Please help us to uh, give our whole selves in response to all that He's done for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.